Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach. Have you ever wondered how well-suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz, and you can find the quiz right on the homepage of my website. That's sumatisparks.com, S as in Sam, U, M as in Mary, A, T as in Tom, I, Sparks as in Sparks are flying. And when you request the quiz, you'll be automatically added to my mailing list, and you'll be the first to learn about my virtual events and to receive occasional helpful tidbits of advice and information to add more love, passion, and joy into your life. So today, I'm so excited to have as my guest, Martha Kaupi. Martha is a therapist, author, speaker, and educator specializing in complex relational therapy, sex issues, and alternative family structures. She trains therapists all over the world and is the author of the groundbreaking new book called Polyamory, a clinical toolkit for therapists and their clients. Welcome to the show, Martha. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So glad to have you. So um, I'd love to hear about how you, like a little bit of your story, like how did you come to be a therapist specializing in alternative family structures? I like that you call it alternative family structures rather than alternative relationship structures because polyamory really can include a family or a polycule more than just relationships. We think of relationship as dyads. So I love that phrase, alternative family structures, and also issues about sex and physical intimacy. So that's just kind of a unique um, niche of therapy. So how did you come to be specializing in that so much so that you could write a book helping other therapists deal with that? (laughs) It's a good question. I've had a long and convoluted career path. Um, This is actually my third career, and my first career was as a midwife. So as a midwife, I certainly worked with families in a big transition, a miraculous but sometimes stressful transition. And I always, since really little, have been very fascinated by health, uh, body health, bodies, how bodies work, reproductive health, um, and how all of that works together. And as I got older, I got more and more interested in sexual health. And so it wasn't, you know, when I decided to go to therapist school, um, I knew before I even went to my first class that my ultimate goal was to be a sex therapist. It was just sort of an extension of a lifelong interest in reproductive and sexual health. And then things kind of developed, um, certainly working with people who are in non-traditional family structures or polyamorous relationships or other forms of consensual or ethical non-monogamy, I wouldn't consider to be sex therapy uh, specifically, although I would expect that somebody who calls themselves a sex therapist is going to be competent to work with that. But Mm -hmm. it became an area of really a lot of interest to me because uh, what I was learning in school from my professors and what I was hearing from masters in the field of relationship therapy did not match what I had observed. And I had observed healthy, happy, long-term polyamorous relationships. 
My brother has always been polyamorous. My parents had kind of a monogamish arrangement that I knew Hmm. about as a kid. And uh, I couldn't believe that I was hearing my professors and also like international masters in relationship therapy say that the only way to true intimacy is monogamy and there's no way that an open relationship could possibly stand the test of time. And I just thought, wow, I don't think so. Uh, So I did a piece of research as a part of my master's program and gathered a whole bunch of information from a whole bunch of people who were in polyamorous relationships and just debunked a boatload of myths for myself, really for my own um, understanding, because I really wanted to kind of clear that up. And then once I had those results and I could see that like the evidence of my eyes was correct and that the uh, sort of party line that was being taught to therapists everywhere was, you know, inaccurate. Then I really felt like, okay, somebody needs to train therapists for how to work with this. And it seems just completely natural to me. I'm queer identified. I'm in a long-term lesbian relationship. I've always been an outside-of-the-box thinker. Uh, I just have known lots of people in non-traditional relationships of all different kinds. And so the idea of thinking about the relational challenges that happen in polyamorous relationships was not a stretch for me. It was just natural. What was weird was trying to figure out why it wasn't natural for everybody else and then kind of how to work the translation, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I love how you did your master's. You just went out and researched um, to prove, you know, to debunk the myths, as you said, to prove that there are successful um, non-monogamous relationships out there and you saw it with your own eyes. So my first question is, can you, would you be willing to share a little bit more about what you mean by your parents had a monogamish agreement arrangement? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So my, I mean, I don't really know. And both of my parents are long since dead, but um, my understanding and my brother's understanding of their relationship agreement was that when my stepfather traveled for work, which he did often and internationally, um, he could hook up uh, if he wanted to. And I don't know if he ever did. I don't know how that actually unfolded. But interestingly, both my brother and I were aware that there was an agreement in place at some point. And um, so, you know, I think I was raised by people who thought for themselves about what worked for them rather than fitting into a particular mold. And so I think that's a incredibly privileged position to start from in terms of acceptance of diversity and uh, understanding um, a broad variety of relational preferences and styles. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then what are some of the myths that you were able to debunk in your research? Oh, I was on a mission um, to figure out, first of all, what were the levels of intimacy like in polyamorous relationships? Did having a new relationship with a relationship with somebody new disrupt the intimacy in the pre-existing relationship? Uh, how many relationships? Like, does polyamory 
de facto equal promiscuity. Uh, spoiler alert, no. Um, and, you know, just a whole bunch of stuff like that that's sort of part of the cultural mythology of this marginalized population. Mm-hmm. And so you found that adding a new relationship did not decrease the intimacy of the initial relationship? Did it, in fact, enhance the intimacy if it was done well? I didn't actually ask. Um, Mm -hmm. I was only trying to debunk the myth. So Mm -hmm. um, it definitely, and so I didn't relate. Let's see. There wasn't lower intimacy afterwards Mm -hmm. uh, after another person was added. So I didn't Mm -hmm. delve into it. I also looked at the length of relationships because there's this mythology that I kept hearing about uh, open relationships can't stand the test of time. And I was like, well, mm-hmm. I've seen a whole bunch of them that have. So mm-hmm. is, am I just seeing a skewed sample or what's going on there? And that clearly was debunked thoroughly. Mm-hmm. Um, my study included ever, like, primary relationships, secondary relationships, non-hierarchical relationships, whatever, uh, short ones, long ones, and what have you, and the average length was over eight years. So, mm-hmm. um, and for secondary or non-first uh, coexisting relationships, the length of those tended to be less than two years. So you can see that that eight plus years average was really significant. Mm-hmm, so there yeah. were some hugely long relationships, uh, a lot. The largest category was 12 years or longer. Mm-hmm. Wow. I often tell the story about the first polyamory conference I went to 20 years ago. We were sitting around the table at lunch, and someone said, you know, let's go around the table and share, like, how we do polyamory. And this one woman said, I really get frustrated when people assume that polyamorous folks are promiscuous. She said, I've only had, this woman was in her fifties and she said, I've only had four lovers in my life and three of them are here at the conference with me. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? I love that. Yeah. That's fabulous. And yes, the, the average number of relationships was just over two. So a lot of people had uh, identified as polyamorous, but might only be in one relationship right now. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of people had two or three uh, relationships concurrently, and mm-hmm. uh, not that many had a whole lot more than that, although the outlier was 23. So, oh. um, you know, right, <laughs> some, some people did. But, um, again, that sort of two-point whatever it was average with an outlier like 23 is pretty meaningful. Yeah, so well, I have found that most people have. Yeah, I have found that most people don't have time for more than three. If you have to work, <laughs> unless it's all you do in your life is have relationships, it's hard to really devote enough time to call it a relationship. You might be able to have what they call a satellite lover who just kind of comes into town once a year or so. But for a real relationship, yeah, very few of us have more time than that for more than three. <laughs> exactly right there are practicalities involved for sure mm-hmm. cool um, 
Well, so you uh, on your website you talk about desire discrepancy, and um, one of the populations that I work with a lot is mature couples who are not who have a desire discrepancy, and the one person is really afraid to tell the other that they've discovered this thing called ethical non-monogamy. They're afraid to even bring it up with them because even broaching the subject might cause such a blow up in their relationship or the person would just leave them if they even knew they were considering it. Like it's just so outside the box for some people. So do you have any tips or suggestions for how somebody can even bring up the topic with a partner who has, who just doesn't seem like they're open to it at all? I do. You know, this kind of points to the way that I conceptualize relationships period. Um, I think that oftentimes we expect our partners to be in alignment with us, like in agreement with us, want the same things. Uh, And I think this comes from, well, partly the influence of the Disney model of relationships, but also partly because early in relationships, I think that's the developmental task of the relationship is to create a strong foundation by being similar, you know, notice Mm -hmm. all the similarities. Oh, we're so Mm -hmm. like, we're so in agreement. We have so much in common, blah, blah, blah. But then what happens is over time, it's natural and healthy to eventually have it emerge. Oh, we're actually quite unique and different individuals from one another. We have differences of opinion. We have different preferences. We may have different values. We may have different beliefs. And that's a normal, natural, healthy thing. But a lot of people don't know that. A lot of people think that their relationship is broken or needs to end if they have significant differences. And so part of what I do in my work as a therapist or coach or trainer of therapists is help everybody kind of figure out how to work with differences, how to work with the fact that nobody is the same. And just because some of our relational differences might scare that crap out of us, doesn't mean that anything is broken or ruined or hopeless. It's just mm-hmm. natural and normal for us to be different. Mm-hmm. And so what, how would one begin to make space for those differences so that they could bring up such a topic as this? Like I find that a lot of times couples become very enmeshed when they're monogamous for a long time. So do you have any process for like unenmeshing couples so that they can start to make room for their differences? Well, a lot of people are really enmeshed whether they're monogamous or not, I would say. Uh And Uh I think my first step is this little piece of education. This is normal Uh and expectable. It's healthy. People Uh in long-term, juicy, successful, amazing relationships have figured out a way to navigate their differences because Uh if you don't have differences, things get kind of flat. You know, Mm -hmm. if it's all matchy-matchy all the time, pretty soon you're like, hmm, this is kind of boring. So our differences are our strengths rather than our weakness. But then, so that's sort of the first step is just a little reframe there. I see this completely differently. This is normal. It's a strength and it's a thing you can work with. And it's a thing you can build skills for. Mm -hmm. And then the skills that I would uh, help people build around that include being able to get in contact with yourself at 
sort of core at center and figure out what you think and feel and prefer, even if it is different from what your parents, what your siblings, what your partners, what anybody around you, what your um, childhood religion or, you know, just separate from any other influence. What do you actually want? What do you actually think, feel, believe, and prefer? Mm-hmm. And then using that as a jumping off place to then next skill, say it to somebody else who's very important to you, even if you think they might not agree with you or it might be hard for them to hear. Mm-hmm. And then skill, um, hold steady and get really grounded to be able to hear somebody else who's important to you, giving you information about them and their desires that's hard for you to hear. Right. And with all of this together, then I can help the people involved to have a much deeper and more creative, empathetic and generative conversation than they were perhaps having before when they were sort of trapped in the disagreement of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think that's the hardest part is, I mean, it's very hard to get in touch with what you want. It's not a skill we learn in school. <laughs> and and then it's scary to speak that to your partner because you're afraid of how they're going to feel. But I often find that people are more afraid of how they're going to feel about their partner's reaction. They'll say like, oh, I withheld this from you because I didn't want to hurt you. But the truth is they withheld it because they didn't want to feel uncomfortable hearing their partner's response. Do you know what I mean? I do. And I think some of us are better at different aspects of this. And I would call this whole skill set differentiation of self. And, Mm. you know, some parts are easier for some people than others. So sometimes I'll talk to somebody uh, and I'll ask a question like, did you know what you wanted and you just didn't say it? Or did you not even really know what you wanted? And that Mm -hmm. helps me parse out which of these things is the challenge for them. And then, Mm -hmm. of course, I can see it right in front of my face that the challenge is uh, I have trouble holding steady and leaning in with curiosity when my partner tells me something that's hard for me to hear. That gets acted out right in front of us, right? So um, by somebody becoming defensive or shutting down or... Uh, freaking out or getting really angry or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so then the other piece of hearing what your partner is saying that's hard to hear, like let's say they're saying that they want an open relationship and you don't, or they're saying that, um, uh, I can't think of another example right now, but that that piece about hearing, well, I'll I'll give you this example. So when I was... um, new to open relationship, I was dating a polyamorous married man and he kind of wanted to shift things in our relationship structure that made me feel like I was being demoted. So it was really hard for me to hear that. And I just went into like a core wound around rejection and I just couldn't, I couldn't listen to that and stay with an open heart and have love for him. So what, what are some skills for being able to hear a really difficult thing to hear? And I'm imagining this goes back to just connecting with self, but I want to hear what you say, what you have to say. I think that's a really deep question actually. Uh, And it points to 
a skill that underlies all of those three skills, which has to do with emotional regulation and managing automatic reactions that are based in the self-protective part of the brain and that come from past trauma or attachment wounds or what have you. So being, being able to know yourself and your own emotional responses and have respect for yourself and your emotional responses and also at the same time hold your aspirational goals uh, gently also. So I might be completely freaked out and terrified and also know that I want to be the person leans in with curiosity. And if I've gotten clear with myself as a result of talking to a coach or a therapist or a self-help project or what have you, I've gotten clear with myself that this is my intention. My intention is be in this open relationship, lean in, get curious, be a partner who really wants to know what's true for their partner. I don't want, um, you know, to be uh, soft-pedaled or hoodwinked or lied to. I want to know the real truth of who you are, my darling, that kind of person. Mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. that's who I want to be and that's a value for me, then that's going to give me some muscle that I mm-hmm. need um, badly when I have an automatic reaction. Then I'll be like, oh, mm-hmm. dang, right? Like i got to figure out what to do with this. I've got to figure out how to regulate it. And then gradually, 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 I will learn how to do that. And then oftentimes with substantial help, and this is another thing that we didn't learn in school and most of our parents didn't teach us how to do good emotional regulation. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's a, appropriate emotional regulation that honors your emotions for what they can do for you, which is give you information about what you do and don't want, but not let them be decision makers uh, when what's happening is they're getting activated by uh, a negative experience from the past. I love that. Emotions give you information about what you do and do not want writing this down because I love this and what but you don't want to let them what did you say that was the second part of that you don't want to let them make decisions for you make decisions for you right that's excellent. because they yeah. may be arising primarily because of a negative experience you had in the past which may or may not have anything to do with the experience that you're in right now other than like a little reminder of some sort you know mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Right. Excellent. Yeah. So, I mean, this is ongoing work for all of us. Um, and just when we think we've got it, then we have another experience that reminds us that there's another layer, right? <laughs> um, yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's why, you know, it's not like these are skills that it's like one and done. These mm-hmm. are really, it's a lifelong trajectory. And you get better and better at it with practice and the more practice you get and the more aware you are, like I like the little rubric of these four different interconnected skills because it helps me know, oh, in this situation, I knew what I wanted, but I couldn't say it. In this situation, I didn't even freaking know what I wanted. What the hell happened there? You know, Mm -hmm. then I can, because it's contextual. So Mm -hmm. we can continue to develop more and more capacity for being connected with ourselves mm-hmm. and with other people as we grow, especially if we know what it is that we're growing, you know? Right. And so many 
people that I work with, they, they've made a conscious decision to be non-monogamous and they really want their partner to have a happy experience and don't want to set up, don't want to yuck their yum, as you say. Um, so they deny that they're having an emotional reaction because they don't want to get in the way of their partner's pleasure. So how do you balance that desire for your partner to have an unencumbered experience with someone else with your need to emotionally regulate like, and to let your partner know that you're jealous or having a hard time? How do you balance those two desires? Mm. You have a really, really big question. <laughs> <laughs> you obviously work in this hey, field. You're, um, you're the teacher of teachers, so I'm bringing you all I, this good stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love this stuff. I love this stuff. Um, because it is, it's really difficult stuff to help guide people through. Mm-hmm. That emotional regulation piece is one that people have a difficult time even thinking about. Mm-hmm. So I, I see emotions as, Something that comes up that's probably triggered by something in our past that may or may not match what's happening in the current moment. And so it's like a marker. It's like a little flag. And so when I have an emotion, I'm like, oh, look, there's something here. Wonder what it is. As opposed to what the problem is here is my partner did something to me that I don't like. I mean, if my mm-hmm. partner hit me, that's clear. But anything less clear than that, it's a bit more mysterious. You know, mm-hmm. like I wonder what actually got triggered here. Mm-hmm. So jealousy is a great example that people struggle with a ton. Um, everybody struggles with jealousy practically, but certainly many, many people who are in polyamorous relationships at least have the opportunity to work with their own jealousy once in a while. Um, Mm -hmm. or a partner's jealousy. Mm -hmm. So to me, jealousy is one of those super interesting emotions that has a lot of uh, stuff attached to it. Um, Some people experience something that's sort of like self-comparison, like um, probably your other lover's ass is smaller than mine. And so, (laughs) um, (laughs) you know, self-comparison, I'm not as um, attractive, I'm not as beautiful, I'm not as funny, I'm not as wealthy, I'm not as whatever. Or it might be um, uh, sort of a doomsday prophecy uh, kind of jealousy, like probably you're just using this to get ready to leave me, Mm -hmm. or as soon as you realize if you have a good time with them, you're going to realize what a piece of crap I am, and then that's going to be the end of our relationship. And so the upset has more to do with like a feeling of impending ending. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are a lot of other things like that. So when you feel the feeling, instead of being like um, culturally, I think we're taught jealousy means you did something bad to me, like you mm-hmm. did me wrong. Instead, mm-hmm. I see it sort of the way I see anxiety, and I actually think they're very closely related where it's like, oh, I'm having an emotion. I wonder what this is about. It's probably out of proportion to the circumstance in front of me. Are there any facts I could check? Uh, Is there anything I can do to make myself feel better? Uh, What is the story that I'm telling myself in my mind right now that's making it worse? 
uh, is there a way that I could distract myself from this? So I'm going to look toward myself first for ways to manage my anxiety or my jealousy Mm -hmm. before I look to my partner. And then I might ask for help, which I would call as a therapist, I call that co-regulation as opposed to Mm -hmm. Mm self-regulation. But a lot of relationship therapists will go to co-regulation for any kind of emotional management. And Mm -hmm. I strongly disagree. I think that your main money on self-regulation because it's a sure bet. Like mm-hmm. you're, you always have the bandwidth to take care of yourself, mm-hmm. but your partner may not have the bandwidth to help take care of you in any given moment. So from the department of happiness, I think you're much more likely to succeed if you get a strong repertoire of self-regulation and then use co-regulation when it's available and always isn't that nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it's kind of like this ultimate, you know, hilltop moment when you can tell your partner, I really want you to have a good time on your date, and I'm a little triggered, but please don't let it get in the way of your fun. I'm going to go take care of myself. Yeah, And then the partner who's going on the date believes, believes that they will and can trust them that they do know how to self-regulate so that they can go off and enjoy themselves and not be worried while they're on their date. That's right. And it might be a little rough. Mm-hmm. Right? It might be a little rough. And I think that's one of the developmental tasks of being in a relationship that mm-hmm. works well over time is to be willing for your partner to go through some stuff for their own growth, not like neener, 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 you're going to suffer and I'm going to be happy that you're suffering. Not like that, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. more like I'm going to take your word for it that it's part of your personal project to grapple with this tonight and I'm going to distract myself some other way and not be thinking about you all the time. And, you know, we might even have a backup plan like if you just really uh, aren't feeling good at all, text me. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be all or nothing. There can be a backup plan. But to begin to trust your partner and their growth process and their self-awareness does require that you're also willing to sort of be in the messy middle together where, Mm -hmm. you know, I might say, I want to grapple with this tonight and I'm going to do it by self-regulation. I've got a list of projects and it might just go really badly. Mm-hmm. Right? right, but then I'm not gonna beat my partner up with that, and instead I'm gonna be like, well, that was super duper hard, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I've got yeah. more to talk to my therapist about. Yeah, and I'm hearing you that that the partners are on the same team about it. They're not blaming each other. They're they're trying this out, and they're like, well, that that didn't work. Let's try something different the next time. So if you stay on the same team, you can find. And that's one other thing I want to get into with get into with you in a moment is is agreements and um, making agreements in open relationships. But before we do that, um, in case you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com, and we're speaking with Martha Cowpey, who's a therapist and has written a book, Polyamory: A Clinical Toolkit for Therapists. So she actually which is mainstream therapists how to um, work with clients who are non-monogamous or in some other kind of alternative family structure and also helps therapists become more comfortable 
um, helping their clients with their issues around sex. Um, so I think that's a wonderful, uh, wonderful offering to the world, and I really appreciate Martha doing that work. So if you have any questions for Martha, please feel free to call in. Our number is 657-383-1132, and you won't interrupt us. You'll be put on hold, and we'll get to your call at the right time. So again, that number is 657 383 1132. So, yeah, I wanted to ask you because, you know, when I started out in polyamory, we had like this giant long list of agreements and they were very nuanced. <laughs> and then the longer I was in it, then the agreement now is just if you engage in risky sexual behavior, tell me before we have sex. And that's like the only agreement I usually have now. <laughs> but that's taken a lot of years. You know, for me, it's 24 years of practice. So what is your advice to people that are new or newish about how to talk about agreements, what kind of relation, what kind of agreements to make, and then how to keep those agreements? Wow, big, big topic. So, but a really, really fun one, and I love your example. I think when people are nervous about polyamory, they're nervous about the feelings that they might experience, like, gee, I'm really worried that if this happened, I would feel like this, so let's make a rule about that. And I'm worried that if this happened, you would feel like that, and so let's make a rule around that. And the problem is you can't actually legislate feelings away. You're going to have feelings. You're going to still have feelings. You're just going to get surprised by them. So I think that it's more realistic to run a bunch of experiments rather than make like an enormous legislative document. Mm -hmm. Um, and instead be like, well, let's try this experiment and then we'll review after a couple of weeks or after a month, um, and we'll see how it felt. And that will give us some information that we need about how we want to move forward. And little by little, kind of wading in, taking a read on yourself, how, how do things feel between you and your partner or partners, uh, how's, it all, how's it all actually unfolding? And then you're more likely to end up with something that's reality-based. Because if you end up with an enormous document with a million different rules, gee, what could go wrong? I mean, one thing is you could easily forget what's on that document. Um, But I think the more likely thing that can happen is when you've got a whole bunch of stuff like that, I suspect that not all of those agreements were well-made. And an agreement that's not well-made is an agreement that is at risk of being broken and a broken Mm -hmm. agreement is going to undermine the connection and the trust and the trust is really important to helping Mm -hmm. everything work. So feeling secure in your relationship is a necessary aspect of a healthy relationship that lasts. Mm -hmm. So all of these topics kind of weave together into sort of a whole. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And I find that often people will argue about the broken agreement as kind of a smoke screen to avoid how they feel about the broken agreement. <laughs> yes. And I would add, I think that people argue about the broken agreement and that distracts everybody involved, including any helping professionals from the real problem, which is, the lack of differentiation in making the agreement in the first place. So I prefer not to get, yeah, I prefer not to get distracted by 
a broken agreement. I prefer instead to look towards, did you know what you wanted? And at what point did you know that you wanted Mm. something different than what you had agreed to? And then mm-hmm. what was it that prevented you from bringing that up right then? So we've got, mm. like, failed differentiation, right? Yeah, we're back to that again, like knowing what you want. And, yeah, because I just recently had a couple I was working with where the woman said she didn't really want to agree to something, and, and then she blamed him for coercing her into agreeing, agreeing to this thing she didn't want instead of the, like, ownership that she has a voice and she can say no. Yeah, but, you know, relationship therapists and coaches, oh, boy, I hope I don't get myself, like, in total trouble with your entire listenership right now, but um, I think a lot of us were trained purely in attachment theory and don't have a lot of experience working with differentiation, and I know that doesn't describe you because I know your work a little bit, and you talk about these components of differentiation a lot, but if you're looking towards the relationship between people to mend all the hurt from the past, which relationships Mm -hmm. are very good at mending attachment wounds. So I'm not saying that magic doesn't happen, but if that's what we're primarily looking for, then it's really easy for a helping professional to say, what do you want to ask your partner for? Mm -hmm. And I think that is a mistake of a question. Instead, I would ask each person to look inside and say something about what they themselves think, feel, prefer, want, believe, desire, and then say it to their partner. And then they can begin to discuss any differences that emerge rather than that co-regulation thing of asking you to please give me this. That's just a, um, that's like handing somebody a basket and asking them to be coerced, right? Like, Mm-hmm. do it for your partner. Do it because your partner asked for it. There's like this implied pressure as the therapist is like looking from one person to the other. It's like, it's not surprising that people agree in session to things that they don't really believe in or that they don't really want to agree to because yeah. everybody's looking at them to solve the problem. And everybody's saying your, your partner asked you for this. Now what's wrong with you? And so I would just never do that. I think that's just a massive pitfall. Yeah, well, thank you for validating that because I do teach a process around separating out because a lot of couples don't realize that if you ask your partner for something that they they have five different responses to that request. And they just automatically assume that if it's asked, they must do it. That's right. That's exactly right. You can say, you you know, yes, I'd be happy to do that. That's easy for me to say yes to. Or you can say yes and, like, yes, I'll I'll let your mother move in with us, and I want to be the one that invites her so she knows I really want her to. Or they can say yes, but, like, yes, but I want to finish the spare bathroom first before she moves in. They can say, I need to think about this. Like, give me a week or two, and I'll get back to you, you know. Or they can say, no, that totally doesn't work for me. I never want your mother to live with us. And then comes the negotiation, like, what's the underlying need? Are you worried about your mother? Can we get that need met some other way? So, yeah, this is a practice I teach all my couples because they just assume that asking your partner for something means I have to give it to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely a fatal flaw. 
and mm-hmm. and it's no wonder then. I mean, our whole culture is built around this idea, and so that's how we end up with agreements that were made to be broken. People mm-hmm. agree to stuff because, well, I've never been able to do it before, but for you, my love, I will do it this time, <laughs> and somehow, magically, it's going to work out. Like, what could go wrong, right? It would be much better for somebody to say, you know what? I would love to be able to do that. I have a long history of never actually achieving that. I'm not sure I even believe in it. And I think we've got a lot more talking to do before I would agree to it. I'm really honestly not sure that this is something that I want to agree to. Now, Mm -hmm. that's a hard conversation. It's understandable why therapists and coaches don't just welcome that. But I do because I think that thing we were talking about at the very beginning, like diversity is our strength, not our weakness. Our differences Mm -hmm. are good. It's a good thing. We're strong enough to hear that our partner wants something different than we do. And if we can get out of the gridlock about it and into kind of a more creative, expansive place, some of the questions you just asked, why is it important to you? What is it about that that lights you up? What is it about that that you're afraid of? What are the aspects of a relationship that are the most important to you? How can we build that in regardless of what our relationship structure is? You know, like sort of sky's the limit proliferation of possibilities is the opposite of gridlock. Mm-hmm. And so you, you talk about um, attachment and um for those that aren't really sure what that means, most of my listeners are, but for those that haven't, can you just explain what does secure attachment mean? And I know this is another one of those big questions, but how can, how can someone achieve that if they've, they've never had a relationship with secure attachment? Yeah, uh, well, there's a lot written about it. Um, attachment theory has been around for a really long time, and uh, – In uh, just a small nutshell, um, when we're little babies, the way that we know we exist is by other people responding to us. So particularly our primary caretaker, whoever that might be, looks at us. When we make a motion with our mouths, they smile, then we smile, then they laugh. And there's a connection there, and we know we exist, and we know we're important. And there are a lot of different things that can happen to kids that are not ideal. Uh, They certainly don't all fall into the category of abuse, by the way. So many of us have developmental trauma or attachment wounds that didn't experience what you would call abuse, but something disrupts that sense of security. And um, there are a lot of ways it can look, and then we bring that forward into our adult relationships until we heal it. And it's one of the incredible privileges of being a therapist or a counselor or a coach is to help people to find wholeness for themselves again. The thing is that in an adult relationship, if we have an attachment wound, we may be looking to our partner to complete us. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like um, I've never felt safe and secure and I've been scared of abandonment for my whole entire life and what I want from you is to be 100% reliable and never abandon me so that I can heal that. 
Mm-hmm. Well, the problem is my adult partner is an adult. They're not my parents, and I'm not their child. So their primary initial ultimate obligation is to themselves. So mm-hmm. my partner looks to themselves first, which means that on some occasions they're not going to be emotionally available to me in the way that I need. Mm-hmm. So that it's a mistaken construct that our partner must mend us or complete us in some way or that we must be 100% reliable in the ways that our partner is vulnerable. And instead it would be really, really great if we could figure out how to reparent our own wounds, you know, mm-hmm. or have a therapist help through the relationship between the therapist and the client to build some security and some attunement and responsiveness that begins to feel reliable. So then we can start to experience our world as being stable. Mm -hmm. It's definitely doable. In fact, um, there's an entire category of security called earned secure where you have had uh, an attachment disruption and then you mend it. Um, Usually relationally is how that happens. And it might be a relationship with a professional it might be a relationship with a partner, but the um, the wound gets mended, and then and now you have a secure attachment as an adult person called insecure. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. It's good to know that we can get there with the right support. Absolutely. I don't think there's anything that we can't change, honestly. Mm-hmm. And I think that. This sets me apart from some other clinicians probably and certainly from people who aren't therapists. I I just couldn't possibly do this work if I didn't believe in change. I believe in mm-hmm. personal change like like more than I believe in anything else. Mm-hmm. I think if there's something that you want for yourself, you can get that thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the awareness of it I find is super important. Um, just be, like It's almost like three-quarters of the way there is just, developing an awareness of what your patterns are and you know that way you're not blaming your partner you're just saying oh there's that thing again that comes up for me (laughs) yeah and I think the rest of it or maybe I think three quarters of it is actually personal motivation there's Mm self-awareness and then there's also personal motivation so like if I think um, what I want for myself is to be polyamorous for my partners so they'll be happy and choose me, I'm not going to have a lot of motivation behind some really challenging aspects of polyamory because I'm sort of doing it so that my partner won't leave me, right? Mm-hmm. right. And so that's a very shaky motivation. But if I want to manage my emotional responses better because that's the kind of person that I want to be in the world, and that's I want to look back on my life and be like, God damn it, I did, you know. Right. I, right, then that's the kind of grit that you actually need to create personal change. You need to really want something for your own reasons, not for a people-pleasing reason or not being left to reason. Exactly. And so um, this is a good segue for my last big uh, existential question, like all the others I'm giving you. (laughs) So if somebody... (laughs) If somebody is, um, you know, has has been doing uh, ethical non-monogamy for a while, and they really want to get to the next level, um, what are some 
some ideas and thoughts and tips that you could give somebody who, who really wants to up their game and really be someone who can give love rather than trying to get love, you know, and to like really give understanding rather than always trying to be understood, kind of, you know, be, be someone who's full so that they can give. Like what, what would be your advice to somebody to, to take their relating to the next level? Well, you just defined a nice level of relating pretty beautifully. I think, <laughs> you know, asking yourself, what do you want for yourself? How do I want to show up in this relationship? What kind of a person do I want to be? What kind of a partner do I want to be? What do I want my relationship to feel like and look like and be like? And in that dream of what a relationship that would be ideal for me is, how am I showing up? And then get there and be that rather than looking at your partner and waiting around for them to change. Get your eyes on your own plate and figure out how you want to show up and then roll up your sleeves and figure out what's in the way of you showing up like that and get a move on. Mm-hmm. I think that we have this extremely human, understandable, and super annoying trait of looking at our partner and saying, you know, if you were just different, everything would be freaking fine here. Right, so. Right you need to get moving and change all the things about yourself. And while I'm sitting here tapping my watch and complaining about how long it's taking you. Um, And it's just not, that's not an effective change mechanism. So change comes, I know this is a trope, but change comes from within. The only person I can change is me. Mm -hmm. The only person my partner can change is them. So, you know, and as a therapist, I can't change anybody but me any more than anybody else can. So what I can do is a little bit of a magic trick in helping people figure out what they want for themselves and helping people figure out what's getting in their way and remove some of those blocks through some deep work. But the idea that um, I'm, I want to empower people to make their own personal change, it's very disempowering to sit around waiting for someone else to change so you can be happy. That's such a, just it's a heart-wrenching trap of disempowerment. And it's where most people are relationally, unfortunately. So coming to a point where I can figure out what I want and move toward it, and then I'm hoping that the people around me will also want to move in a direction that I can respect and love. And if it doesn't happen... I'm probably going to sort things differently and hang out with different people. You know, it's not an ultimatum, but it's just like I need to move in the direction I want to move. And usually what happens is that is so attractive and interesting and enlivened and empowered that people are drawn to it. And people do tend to move kind of forward together. But playing the game of, I'm not going to budge till you budge. No, I'm not going to budge till you budge. Um, Keeps a lot of people stuck for a long time. So I think there's a deep look inside of oneself that has to happen kind of at the beginning of change. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Really well said. So um, what's your best advice for, you know, so many people are, are stuck with how to find compatible non monogamous partners during these bizarre pandemic times that we're in. So what would be your best advice for somebody who 
know, either already in a relationship and wanting additional relationships or somebody who's single and just having trouble meeting people because there's no festivals and conferences. Um, have you come up with any ideas? I don't have a lot of dating advice. Um, mm-hmm. I, I certainly know a lot of people who have found partners through online platforms. Mm-hmm. I know lots of people who have done their dating and a lot of a lot of their relating online. I know people who have had to take in-person polyamorous relationships to online polyamorous relationships, and it's been really, really tough. Uh, mm-hmm. I think, um, I, I mean, I have some opinions. Like one opinion I have is that it's worthwhile to do a little risk assessment for yourself and figure out what is the greater risk Um, and everybody sort of has to work that equation for themselves. But the idea that the only risk is that you might get ill and there is no risk to isolation, I think, is a little overly simplistic. So I guess um, I would probably leave it at that very provocative statement. (laughs) No, it's true. Like I've moved moved around a bit out of necessity um, last year because – where I was living became just utter pandemonium. Um, I live across the street from a popular park in my city, and it, it just became fest- this unregulated, crazy festival, and my nervous system just could not be there. So I was trying to find a place where I could feel calm, and I noticed that there were different uh, people responded differently to. Um, COVID in different areas, depending on how many cases there were in that area. And so when I came to Hawaii, like everybody has to get a negative test before they even step on the island. And um, it's a very, they're very conservative with, they've never let go of the indoor mask mandate because they only have a few hospital beds here on the island. So they've had to be very cautious. And so, and, and we're outdoors all the time on the beach. It's, warm and sunny and we can meet outdoors so I was willing to take more risks here than I was when I was living in California at the height of the pandemic when you know it was one of the worst places in the world so so yeah I've had to to, um, make those kind of choices as well that like I need connection I I need you know some kind of human interaction um, for my well-being and I'm willing to take a little bit of a risk for that especially because I'm not taking care of an elderly person or, you know, school-aged children, I can choose that for myself. So I hear you. I think that's a really good opinion. Yeah, I think it's gotten um, not nearly enough uh, attention, the idea of personal risk assessment and um, balancing of risks rather than just sort of a panic approach. Like the, Mm -hmm. the only risk here is this. It's not the only risk that we're facing by any means. Exactly. Well, gosh, Martha, it was really fun geeking out with you about relationships. <laughs> really enjoyed this, and the time time just flew by. So, I want to give you a chance to tell our listeners how they can reach you, and anything else you want to say about your practice and your book and everything. Sure, thank you. Yeah, this has been super fun. Um, I wrote my book, um, Polyamory: A Clinical Toolkit for Therapists and Their Clients for two audiences. First, I wrote it for therapists. And then when I finished it, I thought, you know, not everybody can find a therapist. And a lot of people in the polyamorous community have a 
huge amount of insight and personal resourcefulness and commitment to personal growth. And I thought, I need to write this for them in case they don't have access to therapy or can't find a therapist who's polyamory uh, friendly or don't have the financial resources or the time or what have you. So I rewrote my book so that it can be used by therapists. It can also be used by people who want to open their relationships or are having struggles in their open relationship. It's got 25 worksheets. It's got the exact stuff in it that I use with my clients, uh, even at very complex levels. So it's super robust and, um, and it reads pretty much like I talk. So um, it's not going to be like a big, heady, um, theoretical text going to pretty much feel like this conversation has felt. So um, that's what I would like to plug. If you want a self-help project and you like some of the ideas that I'm talking about and you're curious how you would actually put it into practice, um, I wrote that book and I wrote it for you. So um, you can get you can get my book on Amazon. You can go to my website, and there are uh, independent bookseller links and UK links and um, other overseas links. And my website is instituteforrelationalintimacy.com. Great. Well, thank you so much, Martha. I think your book is a, a tremendous gift to to the community and to our field. So thanks again for being on the show, and I wish you great luck with your practice. Thank you. You too. This has been just a delight. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye-bye. So next week on Leading Edge Love Radio, I am so excited to have as my guest Annie Sprinkle and her partner Beth Stevens or Stephens. I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but they um, they are on a book tour right now. Um, and their book is called Assuming the Ecosexual Position, The Earth as Lover. And it's the story of the artistic collaboration between the two of them who are the originators of the eco-sex movement. So they told me that, that they are pollen amorous. <laughs> so that's going to be a lot of fun. So please join us next week on Leading Edge Love Radio time, 9 p.m. Eastern time. And it's usually every Tuesday evening. Um, and uh, we welcome you. Please join us. Have a good evening. <laughs>